Lana Turner is the definition of movie star, loves hot sauce and fashion, goes through seven husbands, is saved by her daughter, and can make anyone laugh. It's my birthday tribute to Lana Turner. Thank you for listening to Vanguard of Hollywood. I'm Shannon Allen. Lana Turner tops the list of Hollywood glamour queens. Always camera-ready, always fashionable, and usually decked out in jewels, Lana was the definition of movie star. With her rags-to-riches discovery story, ethereal beauty, and seven husbands, Lana Turner's life was the stuff of Hollywood legend. But beneath the movie star image was a thoughtful, funny, generous, and hardworking woman who loved her mother and daughter above all else. As we celebrate her February 8th birthday, here are a few things about Lana Turner you didn't know. First, her father's murder is still unsolved. Lana was born Julia Jean Turner in Wallace, Idaho on February 8, 1921. Julia's young mother, Mildred Francis, was only 16 years older than her daughter. This fairly small difference in age led to an extremely close relationship between mother and daughter. The rare bond between Lana and Mildred became even stronger after the tragic murder of Lana's father, Virgil Turner. Headed home one evening after a lucky streak shooting craps, Virgil carried his significant winnings in his left sock, as was his habit. He planned to spend the extra income on a bicycle for his little girl. But Virgil didn't make it home that night. When his body was later found in a back alley, his left sock and his earnings from the game were missing. The murder of Virgil Turner remains unsolved today. Grief-stricken, Mildred and nine-year-old Julia Jean were officially on their own. Being a single working mother in the early 1930s wasn't easy, but Mildred worked hard to provide for her little girl. By the time Julia Jean was 15, she and her mother were living in Los Angeles. My next fact? Lana Turner wasn't discovered at Schwab's with a milkshake or a malted. Legend has it that teenage Lana Turner was discovered at Schwab's drugstore sipping a milkshake or a malted. Over the years, Lana's fabled discovery story inspired countless young teens to flood Schwab's where they too hoped to catch their big break. But according to Lana, that's not exactly how it happened. 15-year-old Julia Jean, or Judy as her friends called her, was discovered after deciding to cut typing class for a soda. As Lana recalled in her autobiography, quote, Not a strawberry soda or a chocolate malted, the way the story goes. It was only a Coke, because a Coke cost a nickel, and that was all the money I had. The place was the Top Hat Cafe. As I sipped the Coke, a man at the fountain kept staring at me, unquote. The man, as it turned out, was W.R. Billy Wilkerson, publisher of The Hollywood Reporter. When he asked young Judy if she'd like to be in the movies, her innocent response was, quote, I don't know, I'd have to ask my mother, unquote. After getting her mother's permission, Julia Jean Turner found herself in the movies. My next Lana fact, her name is often mispronounced. Julia Jean's first film was 1937's They Won't Forget at Warner Brothers. 
The studio told teenage Judy that though her last name was a good, strong American name, her first name was too common and had to go. It was Judy herself who thought up her new first name, Lana, which she believed was nearly divinely inspired. Quote, Out of nowhere, a name came into my head, clearly as though God had decided to speak to me. I'd heard it in my head as Lana, and I don't like hearing it pronounced any other way. Unquote. Lana's daughter, Cheryl Crane, further underscores that there's only one correct way to pronounce her mother's name. Quote, her name was Lana, as in la-di-da, she would say while correcting people. It offended her ears to hear it pronounced any other way, and it's still jarring for me to hear it pronounced with a flat A, as in land. Unquote. Another Lana Turner fact, she loved hot sauce. Lana Turner adored hot sauce and was known to bring her own hot sauce bottle everywhere. According to Lana's daughter, Cheryl, quote, she carried hot sauce in her purse and added it to virtually everything. She believed chili peppers cleansed the toxins out of the body, unquote. My next Lana fact, she was a gifted dancer. Though she didn't have any formal dance training, Lana Turner was a naturally gifted dancer. Films such as Two Girls on Broadway and Dancing Co-Ed gave Lana a chance to show just what a beautiful dancer she was. Lana was a regular on the dance floors of popular nightclubs like Ciro's, her favorite, the Macombo, and the Coconut Grove. If MGM had used her talents differently, Lana Turner could have been one of the dancing greats of her generation. Another Lana Turner fact? She was funny. Lana didn't get to show her great sense of humor very often in her films, but watch any one of her interviews from the 1980s as she promoted her autobiography, and Lana's great sense of humor and fun are clear. As Lana herself put it, quote, The press has never had any sense of who I am. They've even missed my humor. Even when times were tough, as they so often were, my friends knew that I could come up with a funny story, acting out all the parts with voices for each of the players. Humor has been the balm of my life but it's been reserved for those close to me, not part of the public Lana." Unquote. Cheryl Crane seconds this observation, sharing that her mother was, quote, "...human and incredibly fun. My mother possessed an extraordinary sense of humor, which, I believe, is what saved her from becoming a Hollywood tragedy. She was, above all, a survivor, and she loved to laugh more than anything in the world." Unquote. And another Lana fact, she had seven husbands. Similar to Elizabeth Taylor, Lana Turner had seven husbands. Here's a rundown of each one. Lana married first husband Artie Shaw in 1940. Shaw was a pompous, pedantic band leader with a penchant for marrying glamorous women and breaking their self-esteem. Artie caught Lana on the rebound from the heartbreak of her first love, attorney to the stars Greg Botzer. Greg and Lana were engaged, and then he cheated on her with Joan Crawford. When Greg then stood Lana up for a date on her birthday, it cleared the way for Artie Shaw to sweep Lana off her feet. Artie asked Lana out on a date, and Lana, frustrated with her cheating fiancé, accepted. That very same night, Artie and Lana eloped in Las Vegas. 
Lana was only 19. Lana later said that after a mere three days of marriage to Artie Shaw, she knew she'd made a mistake. Artie was cruel and manipulative to his young wife. His goal seemed to be to de-glamorize Lana and make her feel stupid. And he'd do the same thing to Ava Gardner when they wed a few years later in 1945. Lana said that Shaw treated her, quote, like an untutored blonde savage, and he took no pains to conceal his opinion, unquote. Lana tried her best to make the marriage work for four months, but ultimately, she couldn't take the mental abuse. Guess who her divorce attorney was? Yep, ex-fiancé Greg Boutzer. Lana fell for husband number two, Stephen Crane, fast, only to find out after they married in 1942 that he was already married. Somehow, Stephen failed to mention that during their brief courtship. Lana, pregnant with their daughter Cheryl by the time she found out, was nearly charged with bigamy. The marriage to Crane was annulled, and for the sake of soon-to-be-born Cheryl, Lana and Stephen married again once his divorce was final. But the damage had been done. Lana couldn't trust her husband, who also spent her hard-earned money faster than she could make it. And that spelled the end of the Turner-Crane marriage. Lana's third husband, Henry J. Topping Jr., was born to wealth. His family money came from steel, railroads, and tin plate. Lana was attracted to Topping in part because he had his own money, and she felt secure in the knowledge that Bob wasn't after her money. Bob Topping was a kind man, and he eventually earned Lana's love through his sweetness to Lana's daughter, Cheryl. Lana also appreciated that with Bob, she could be herself. Quote, With Bob, I felt I could be myself, not just the glamorous image that my roles portrayed and the studio work to enhance. Unquote. Bob proposed to Lana by dropping a 15-carat Marquise diamond ring into her martini glass. And she accepted. Lana married Bob Topping on April 26, 1948. The wedding was a grand affair, indicative of the extravagance that would define the Turner-Topping union. Lana and Bob enjoyed living the good life together, at least for a time. Eventually, Bob's drinking got out of control, and, irony of ironies, he too came to rely on Lana's income. The couple divorced in 1952. Lana married husband number four, Lex Barker, in 1953. Lex was definitely the scummiest of Lana's husbands. Best known as one of the many movie Tarzans, Lex sexually abused Lana's daughter Cheryl. When Lana found out, the marriage was over. Lana's next husband was Fred May, a successful real estate agent and, in the years after his marriage to Lana, the mayor of Malibu. Lana and Fred married in 1960. Lana herself said that Fred May was the only one of her husbands who was a giver, not a taker. Fred never tried to use Lana for her fame, money, or connections. He was a good guy, something Lana wasn't used to. Neither Lana nor her daughter Cheryl could come up with a solid reason why the marriage to Fred didn't work. Even after Lana and Fred divorced, they remained good friends. Perhaps by the time she and Fred got together, Lana was so accustomed to being used by her husbands, she didn't know what to do with the guy who treated her right and divorced him out of habit. 
Lana's sixth husband, Robert Eaton, was not a nice guy. He married Lana in 1965, lived off her income, then partied and cheated on her in their own bedroom while Lana was out of town making the movies that supported his extravagant, cheating lifestyle. Obviously, the two divorced. The marriage ended in 1969. Lana's seventh and final husband, Ronald Dante, was born Ronald Peller, but this con man was known to have at least 40 aliases. At the time he met Lana, Peller went by the name of Dr. Dante, having carved a niche for himself as a hypnotist in the Hollywood community. Dr. Dante's con was so good, the Guinness Book of World Records lists him as the recipient of the highest paid lecture fee ever for a weekend hypnotherapy course he conducted in Chicago. Friends of Lana said that Dr. Dante must have hypnotized her into marrying him, but the trance didn't last long. One evening after a night on the town together, Dante excused himself, ostensibly to go pick up some sandwiches for a late-night snack. And he never came back. Of course, just before deserting his wife, Dante got Lana to write him a $35,000 check for a quote-unquote business investment. Luckily, Lana was able to stop payment on the check, but that was obviously the end of the Turner-Dante marriage. Dr. Dante was later convicted of mail fraud for running the Columbia State University Diploma Mill and forced to forfeit his $1.5 million yacht, pay $45,000 in restitution, and somehow worked a potential 45-year prison term down to eight months. He also pled guilty of attempted murder for contracting the murder of a rival hypnotist. So, good thing Lana got away from Dr. Dante when she did. Despite all the heartache, Lana kept her sense of humor about all seven of her husbands. Quote, Somebody asked me recently if I've ever sat down and added up what my husbands cost me in cold, hard cash. I know that the figure must come to tens of thousands of dollars. With the exception of dear Fred May, who is still my good friend, all of my husbands have taken and I was always giving. One thing I have to say about my husbands, all of them were able to make me laugh. At least at the beginning, I couldn't have married them otherwise. Unquote. It's this attitude and humor that helped Lana Turner survive seven marriages without becoming bitter at the world. A remarkable Lana Turner fact her daughter saved her life. While Lana filmed the melodramatic Peyton Place in the summer of 1957, she discovered some even bigger drama in her personal life. Lana's boyfriend, the man who helped revitalize her after the breakup of her fourth marriage, was, it turned out, a notorious mobster. When John Steele introduced himself to Lana in April of 1957, he seemed to be a nice, romantic guy. John Steele gained Lana's trust, and they became a couple. But then a friend of Lana's recognized John and told Lana that her new boyfriend was actually John Stompanato, one of mobster Mickey Cohen's right-hand men. Lana approached John immediately with this information and told him that she wanted to end their relationship. But John Stompanato said no way. And he threatened to harm Lana's mother or daughter if she attempted to get the police involved. It was a frightening time for Lana Turner. Quote, Most of what I felt at this time was fear. I felt trapped. 
and John took pains to remind me that he had the power to harm me and my family. His threats were vague in the beginning, that rather than let me go, he would see me dead first. Unquote. Every time Stompanato caught up with Lana on her travels for work or private vacations, physical abuse followed. Bruises and camouflage by makeup became part of Lana's daily existence. There seemed to be no way out of the vicious abuse cycle, and it only got worse on the night of the 1958 Academy Awards, which Lana attended to honor her Best Actress nomination. When Lana and her daughter Cheryl came home from the Oscars late that night, Stompanato was waiting for Lana in her room. The beating John gave Lana for taking Cheryl instead of himself as her date was intense. Cheryl could hear it through the walls. For the first time in her mother's year-long relationship with John Stompanato, Cheryl realized exactly what was going on. When Stompanato began another intense beating of her mother just over a week later, on Good Friday, April 4th of 1958, Cheryl ran downstairs and grabbed the only means of defense she could find, a kitchen knife. As Cheryl remembered, quote, The thought of scaring him away flashed into my mind. I went back up the stairs to Mother's bedroom and stood outside of her door for a few moments as Stompanato continued threatening to disfigure her. Suddenly, Mother threw open the door. John came up from behind, his arm raised as if to strike. I took a step forward and he ran on the knife in my hands. Stompanato looked at me and said, My God, Cheryl, what have you done? Before falling to the floor. He was dead within moments. Unquote. By complete chance, it was a perfectly placed, fatal stab to Stompanato's aorta. Lana immediately understood that her young daughter had saved her life. And now, it was time to protect Cheryl. As Lana recounted of her first thoughts after the stabbing, quote, I began to grasp the enormity of what Cheryl had done and began to understand why. She'd heard John say that he was going to destroy my face, and she'd brought the knife to protect me. A young girl, a child against a big man. The thrust of the knife piercing the aorta was fatal by chance. She was trying to protect me. She was now in terrible trouble. Nothing seemed to matter except protecting her. Unquote. And that's exactly what Lana, her mother Mildred, Stephen Crane, and attorney Jerry Geisler spent the next month doing. There would be no special treatment for Cheryl, who spent the time between the homicide and her eventual acquittal at the end of April 1958 behind bars at the Beverly Hills Police Station and Juvenile Hall. That's three weeks behind bars for a 14-year-old girl. Cheryl was eventually acquitted on the grounds of justifiable homicide. But how could such an event not shake even the most well-grounded young woman? Cheryl's teenage years that followed the happening, as Lana and Cheryl referred to the events of Good Friday 1958, were understandably rough and rebellious. But as Lana proudly shares in her autobiography, Cheryl matured into a well-adjusted, accomplished young woman, a graduate of Cornell University who went on to become a successful businesswoman in real estate. And Lana, ever the survivor, rose from the tragedy of Good Friday 1958 with Imitation of Life, a hit film that catapulted her into yet another successful decade of stardom. 
The Stompanato homicide will forever be part of the Lana Turner legacy. But thanks to her daughter's bravery, it wasn't the end of Lana Turner. My next Lana fact, she was a hard worker. After her father's murder, Julia Jean Turner dreamed of the day she could lift the heavy load from her mother's shoulders and support Mildred financially. And from the age of 17 on, Lana Turner did just that. Once Lana became a star, her income supported both Turner women for life. Mildred never had to work again. Lana was known for her professionalism. She never came to her film sets unprepared and was always letter-perfect with her lines. And while other glamour queens watched their careers fade away with age, Lana moved with the times. Without losing the core Lana Turner glamorous image, she remained an in-demand actress through her later years. Lana, understandably, was proud of her longevity and work ethic. Quote, Everything I had, the kind of life I loved, had come through my own efforts, from hard, continual work under pressure. Unquote. My next Lana Turner fact is that she wanted a big family. Lana once said that, quote, My plan was to have one husband and seven children, but it turned out the other way. Unquote. Lana's blood was Rh negative, which made it extremely difficult and dangerous for her to have children. Her beautiful daughter Cheryl was the only pregnancy Lana was able to carry to term. And Cheryl's birth was nothing short of a miracle. Baby Cheryl required a complete blood transfusion immediately after her birth. Lana was very candid about her pain and disappointment at not being able to have more children. Quote, It's one of life's bitter ironies that I, who wanted a big family, could only bear one child. Eventually, I lost three babies, two boys and a girl. Today, mothers are tested for the RH factor, and science has learned to control its damaging effect. But in my day, it almost took a miracle just to save my baby's life. Unquote. Though Lana never had the large family she desired, the deep bond she shared with her mother and daughter was perhaps even greater because of it. A commendable Lana Turner fact she was always camera-ready. Lana's discipline to always be camera-ready, as she put it, was certainly influenced by the example of her mother Mildred growing up and the star training she received at MGM. It did not matter the circumstances, Lana Turner would not leave the house without her makeup on. Perfectly applied lipstick and eyebrows, which never grew back after the makeup department shaved them off for a bit roll in Lana's starlet days, were an absolute must before Lana would even consider going out. According to Cheryl, even in Lana's last years, quote, she was serious about being presentable at all times. Camera-ready was even the rule in her last few months of life when she never left the house. I remember one time we were just going to watch a movie at home and I found her wearing a blue silk Chinese robe with her diamond and pearl brooch as if she was going out to meet Mrs. Astor. She never let herself go. Unquote. And my final Lana Turner fact, she loved fashion. A significant part of Lana Turner's always camera-ready look came down to fashion. Lana loved fashion and loved to dress well. 
Once she became one of Hollywood's most sought-after stars, Lana finally had the income to purchase the clothes she'd always dreamed of. Lana even had a closet custom-made that ran half the length of her home on Mapleton Drive. Initially, this space had been the front porch, but Lana closed it and converted the area into her dream closet. For Lana, the closet of her dreams, filled with the fashions of her dreams, was physical evidence of her success and hard work. The details of Lana Turner's dream closet are impressive. The closet included panel mirrors with a platform for wardrobe fittings, a climate-controlled vault for Lana's furs, a special revolving closet for evening wear, day wear, and slacks, all of which were organized by color and weight, massive shelves for sweaters, blouses, and hats, a 20-foot jewelry vault, and, last but not least, a shoe room. That's right, Lana Turner had a shoe room. According to Lana in her 1982 autobiography, quote, When I became a film star, I developed the spendthrift habit of buying shoes in quantity. Two, three, or four colors, all in the same style. At one time, I had a special room with shelves from floor to ceiling, filled with shoes. I had one of those library ladders so I could climb up to select a pair. Once I counted them all, and I discovered I owned 698 pairs of shoes. That jolted me. Since then, I've tried to control the impulse. Unquote. You may think that owning 698 pairs of shoes is impressive, but Lana had an even greater fashion interest than footwear. Jewelry. As Lana put it, quote, I've always had a weakness for shoes, but my feeling for beautiful jewelry amounted to a passion." Unquote. Admirably, Lana's criteria for what made a piece of jewelry worthy of her collection was completely personal. As long as she found a piece beautiful, Lana didn't much care about the value of the metal or how rare the jewel. According to her daughter Cheryl, quote, "...mother was no snob about the jewelry she wore. MGM rings, which were imitation, rested alongside the real thing." Whether it was genuine or costume, if a piece of jewelry caught her eye with a brilliant sparkle, she would wear it. Unquote. Lana's taste in clothes and jewelry was impeccable. So much so that, at times, Lana was asked to wear her own wardrobe and jewelry in her films. In 1955's The Sea Chase, for example, Lana wore all her own jewelry, and all but one dress in the film was from her own closet. Be sure to visit my website, vanguardofhollywood.com, and search Lana Turner for a look at my own collection of Lana Turner-owned jewelry and items. Lana was photographed wearing many of the items that are now in my collection. Seeing photos of Lana bringing her trademark glamour and style to these pieces makes them absolutely priceless in my book. And that's it for my birthday tribute to Lana Turner. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, vanguardofhollywood.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. And join me next time on Vanguard of Hollywood as I pick back up with Doris Day's story and 1951's Lullaby of Broadway.